My name is Billy Gifford. I am the executive pastor on staff, uh, and I'm excited to be here this morning. I, I, I'm feeling like summer's coming to an end, and I'm kind of torn about that. I don't really know how I feel. I don't like the heat, but then I realize we're in Texas, and the heat's going to go on anyway. And so, uh, but <clears throat> we're turning the corner here. We're entering the fall. Are, are there any, how many college students are back? I'm just curious. Can we? All right, Some. There's some. In the coming weeks, there'll be a lot more. But um, here we are at the end of the summer. We're ending a very big series we called Enthralled. And I'm sure you've heard of it because if you've been here at all, maybe it's the past, I don't know, 9, 10, 11 weeks, something like that. We've been doing a long series about Enthralled and being caught up in the Word of God. And, you know, the church is actually one of the places, actually, excuse me, it's the only place on earth where we gather to hear eternal truths proclaimed. There is no other place you actually hear absolute eternal truth that will go on forever. And so the church is that place and being, uh, you know, we want it to be uh, focused on the word of God and be caught up and captivated by the word of God. And I, I liken this series of enthralled to being caught up with good hygiene, right? Like COVID is, you know, it's doing this thing again. And because of that, people are, have made some changes in their lifestyles. And so people who maybe didn't wash their hands a whole lot now are washing their hands a lot. And avoiding, you know, certain surfaces. And, you know, if you, you walk by someone in the grocery store, you're holding your breath for a few seconds. You know, you've all done that. Don't, don't pretend you haven't. Um, but uh, it, it, we make changes because we, want, we don't want to get sick, right? We, we avoid certain things and we do other things because we don't want, we, we care about our physical health. And so enthralled, I would argue, is like, well, what about our spiritual health? Do we treat our spiritual life, our souls the same way? Like, if we get a little sin on ourselves, do we quickly go and repent and get it off? You know, I imagine, like, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I, I tend to pick on college guys a lot, maybe because I was one, but, like, back in the day, when you were a college guy, you, you could, like, just sneeze on your hands and just, ah, just, you know, nasty, and then just, what's up, bro? And just, like, high five. And back in the day, you can get away with that. You, you didn't care. I, mean, I didn't care. Maybe it's just, just me. Sorry. College guys, y'all are great. I'm weird, but I would just be like, whatever, I'll wash my hands later, you know, give me five. And nowadays it's like, pump, you're like sanitizing that because you, 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 how quickly you want to get that bacteria off. It's like instantly. And so being enthralled, again, just to liken it, it's like, man, how quickly do we want to get that sin out of our lives? Do we think that little thought, that little attitude is less dangerous than COVID or something? We want to be quick to run, to make it right, to clear our conscience, to, to repent. And so we want to run to the word of God like we would hand sanitizer. Maybe that's the message. I don't know. Um, so we, we've been in this series, uh, this mini series within Enthralled, going through the Psalms. Uh, so we started with Galatians and now we're in the Psalms. And uh, I, I, don't, I probably won't have time to recap all of that. So th what I do want to recap is there are many different types of Psalms, many different types and in many different ways we can use them. So, for example, there are Messianic Psalms, which are Psalms that point to Jesus in the future. There are psalms of gratitude, psalms of lament, psalms of penitence, where you just, I'm sorry psalms, psalms of wisdom, psalms of what I call the anytime now, God, psalms, the please help me. There are psalms that I title, hello. You read some of those, which is like, hello, God, you there? Anyone? Anyone? There are psalms that I title, that ain't fair, the that ain't fair psalms. Oh, is it, am I sounding too good? All right. Is that better? All right. To Tyler, it's better. That's great. So all these different types of psalms 
have uh, this one common theme that pulls through really from beginning to end. And what's one of the reasons we want to focus on the Psalms? And that is honesty. They're brutally honest. The writers of the Psalms, they tell you how they feel and they tell you what they know. They just lay it all out there. And if it teaches us anything, reading through the Psalms, it teaches us that, that we can at least, at the very least, be honest before God. You can't, I don't know if you've ever tried to hide from God. I would ask for a show of hands if anyone succeeded, but you haven't. You've not hidden from God. You've not hidden anything from him. And so we can learn from the Psalms, I can at least, at the very least, express the truth of how I'm feeling or what's going on in my life. David does this very well. He's honest in all his Psalms. He lets it all hang out there. If you read some of the Psalms, which I would argue is fairly unusual for a man. I think men find it a little bit more difficult to express their feelings. Uh, They're somehow handicapped in this area. It, It seems that the language side of the brain is a little more developed than women. Let's just be honest. You know, this is like that old stat of like 20, was it, women speak like 20,000 words a day versus men, it's like 7,000. I don't know if that's, I, don't, I haven't verified that, but also I don't know if anyone's going to argue that. So. so men have to kind of learn to do it, but praise God, we have the Holy Spirit. And when he fills us, when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, he, one of the first things he touches is our tongue. And it releases us to, to speak and share emotions and, and let it all out as if it were. And so David acknowledges that he, he clearly seems like a man touched by the Holy Spirit as he shares a lot of his psalms. And so we see honesty in the psalms come out firstly and very simply in the fact that they often reflect the situation or the environment that's going on in life. So in a sense, it's actually not super spiritual. It's just, this is what's happening in life and I'm going to write about it. So for example, Psalm 23, you're familiar with that one. The Lord is my shepherd. So this, this comes from da- David's daily life an experience. He was a shepherd, and so he's writing his, his experience and his life situation. The Lord lit, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, like the sheep. Psalm 29 is another one. Psalm 29, I would say, grew out of a violent thunderstorm that David was caught up in. He describes the voice of God like thunder. He says, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful and majestic. It shakes the wilderness. It hews out flames of fire. He's describing a thunderstorm that he got caught up in. Psalm 63, another one, David in the, in the wilderness of Judah. And he looks around, it's dry and he's thirsty. And so he, he writes it out. He says, my soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Psalm 144, a battle psalm on the victory over Absalom. He writes, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and for battle. And so we see this childlike simplicity and honesty in the psalm simply through expressing what's happening in life. And, and the, the takeaway from that is, I can just be honest before God. Now, with that, there are some psalms that are, what I would say, a little questionable, right? Have you all read some of these? They don't sound very Christian, you know? For example, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? That's not, by the way, that's not, we don't pray that, okay? Uh, uh, may their teeth be pulled out. Blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes their children against the rock. Nope. That's a no. Tickle them until they vomit, Lord. That one's not in there. I made that one up. I was just, I was seeing if y'all were paying attention. Come on, tickle them. But it seems like it could be, right? Some of these psalms are out there. So these psalms don't sound very Christian, 
And there's a lot more to them, but what we, again, what we learn from them and what hopefully we see is that they express what they're really feeling, but they don't stop there. It always is, Lord, here's how I'm feeling. I do want to knock that guy's teeth out. But, Lord, you are in control. But, Lord, I know that you are my refuge. You take vengeance, not me. I trust in you. So it's, it's, this, it's this, I'm going to tell you how I'm feeling, and then I'm going to tell you what I know. And sometimes they don't add up, but I hold them both before the Lord. All right, with that, we're going to go through Psalm 73. So with this honesty in mind, we're going to look at Psalm 73. So if you want to open up your Bibles, you can follow along. It'll be on the screen as well. Uh, And again, the reason I wanted to do Psalm 73 is because there's this element of pure honesty from the writer. The writer is Asaph, who uh, is believed to be one of the worship leaders for David. And Asaph asked this question. He says, why do the wicked seem to prosper in contrast when the righteous seem to suffer. Why do the wicked prosper? And it's a question that really had him stuck. He ponders it. We may have, I mean, it's that age old question that, you know, a lot of atheists have. It's like, well, if God is real, why all the bad? Why does evil persist and and reign in so many places? And so we're going to dive in and hopefully uh, get to some answers. So first one, here we go. He starts off with this, saying, surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he begins this psalm kind of on the front, like like he's prefacing to God. God, hold on, I'm about to say a lot of things, but here's what I do know. You are good. I know you're good. You're good to Israel. You're good to those who are pure in heart. Now, there's a sense that God is good to everyone, right? Like in Matthew 5, 45, Jesus says he causes the... The, the sun to rise on the wicked and the righteous. He causes the rain to pour out on the unrighteous and the righteous. And so the unrighteous farmer gets the blessing of produce just as much as the righteous farmer. And some people see it and some people don't. But God is good clearly to a lot of people. It's just a matter of a lot of people don't acknowledge that. Health is another example. A lot of ungodly characters get to experience great health. And that's a blessing from God. And then there are others who are righteous and good and, and they seem to suffer. And so God is good to many people, but there are experiences of God's goodness that is reserved for those who are pure in heart. And that experience is an eternal, permanent goodness that they get, that's not temporal. But verse two, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? Verse three, because for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So pretty early on, after he prefaces, God, I know you're good, he shares how he almost came to this cliff of unbelief and of doubt. And he questioned, is God really good? Is, is he in control? All that's happening around the world, I see a lot of wickedness going on. He says, I was envious of them. They prospered, the wicked prospered, and I didn't understand it. And he's not the only one to ask this question. If you go through the Bible, there are many great men of God who ask this exact same question. Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, the whole book is about that. Jeremiah, the great prophet to Israel, he he spends an entire chapter in chapter 12 discussing why do the wicked prosper? And it's a question that almost caused Asaph to slip into doubt. It seems that the the ones being blessed by God temporarily are the very ones devoted to being wicked, who don't care about God. And we can look at that and say, I wish I had that. I don't understand why I don't, in fact, because I'm, I'm like, I have certain moral standards and I have conviction and I'm trying to obey God and 
these guys over here don't even care. They, they put their thumb up to God and they're getting all the blessings imaginable and I'm like struggling. And it doesn't make sense to us. We wind up suffering while those who are wicked seem to prosper. And so if you've had this same question, you're not alone. Uh, and I, all, all I will say is you don't need to slip into doubt. You don't need to, like he says here, he almost slipped. We don't need to slip into doubt because we can search the word of God and get an answer. So he says he was jealous because there are people who don't care for God. They cheat, they lie, they cut corners. And the problem that Asaph had here was he was looking at all these wicked people and not at God. And when you do that, you're going to have some questions. It won't be long before you're on the edge of that cliff of doubt and unbelief when you're looking at others. And so looking at others in verse four, he says this, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. So he starts off pointing out very simply that the wicked seem to live healthy lives. And when they die, it seems to be very peaceful for them. I mean, we think of some of the evil dictators that have like reigned throughout the centuries. And we kind of wish they would have been killed sooner or something, right? Like, but it seems that they escape it. I think of Nero, for example, escaped his, escaped his crimes by committing suicide. Same with Hitler. Osama bin Laden, exactly. I mean, he, he was executed, but something in us is like, shouldn't there have been a little bit more justice? It seems like there's this like quick and easy escape from pain. And at the same time, there's Christians around the world struggling in small ways to like just making an honest, earnest living to big ways to like trying to survive and just live. I read an article this past week that over 3,000 Christians were murdered in Nigeria in the first 200 days of 2021. So it's like the righteous are being hunted down and the wicked seem to just have it easy. There is one story in the book of Acts chapter 12 about King Herod who uh, they, they start to praise him as a voice of a God and he accepts that worship and then give it to God and God strikes him down, dead. It says the worms eat him. And we, we read that and we're like, all right. <laughs> a little golf clap for God. I mean, you know, he, he had it coming. <laughs> but that is very rare. It, oftentimes it doesn't happen that way and the wicked, they go on and they prosper and they get all arrogant and puffed up. And in verse five, it says, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. They seem to not have it as hard. They don't have to toil as hard. They don't have to sweat as hard. And the things that come into my world and rock my world don't seem to rock their world. They somehow escape that. Verse six, therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. So Asaph is saying cruelty is like a dress for them. They wear it openly. They're, they're characterized by mistreating people and, and taking advantage of people. And they speak from this place from, from on high. They have this pedestal. They've, they've gotten away with so much that they feel so arrogant that they can even speak against the heavens. One commentary says, they pass judgment on all things and all people and in general act as if they are masters of the universe. So one mark of a wicked man is they act as if they're the masters of the universe. Verse 10, therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? So because of all this, it's God's people 
returning to that same place, the looking at the wicked, the prosperity, and returning to that same place of, I don't understand why they're prospering. And they're drinking an abundance of perplexity. They're confused. It's not like they don't understand it. And they ask these questions, is God really in control? How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Does he really know what's going on? Is he really there? Or am I just making this up? Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Now, this is a very interesting, interesting statement. He says, in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain. One version says it this way. It looks as if I've been stupid to play by the rules. Is it worth obeying God? Is it worth following his rules and, and, and living according to his precepts? Why take the trouble to be pure? And especially why take the trouble to be pure if in the end of it, I don't get anything out of it? Like what's in it for me? All, like, the, these guys over here are, are devoted to being wicked and they're getting everything they need. And I'm trying to be pure and I'm getting nothing. What's in it for me? And therein lies a major problem, if you didn't see it. Because Jesus came to save us from not just habits, but from living a self-centered life. And when a person comes to Christ and they still have this question, well, what will I get out of it? They have not understood what the cross was about. They've not understood what Jesus came to save them from. He didn't just come to set you free from a few bad habits, like drinking or lying or cheating or something. He came to set you free from yourself, where you are the master of the universe, where you're at the center and it's all about you, the self-centered, selfish life. And so when we come to Christ and we say, yes, I'll come to Christ, but what do I get out of it? That man will never be saved because he hasn't seen what salvation is for, what it's about. It's kind of like the solar system. Uh, it works because the sun is in the center, right? Like we're, we're all alive because the earth is orbiting the, the sun. But if, if somehow, I know this is impossible, but if a planet decided, you know what? I want to be the center. I want everyone to orbit me and they just kind of stop orbiting. It's going to lead to death and disaster. It's kind of like that. Obviously, it's not possible, but verse 14. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I've been stricken all day long. When you come to Christ, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, I've experienced this, but your problems don't go away. They actually sometimes increase. Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You may feel stricken all day long because you've come to Christ. Now, of course, you can avoid these afflictions by compromising. You can compromise. And, you know, I think of Daniel and his three friends who were thrown into the fire. And I just imagine, it's just a small thing. I imagine, you know, they're, they're, they're like, we're not going to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. But then one of them could suggest like, well, what if we just like nodded? Is that okay? Like a nod or like a head tilt, you know, with that? You know how the devil tells us just a little bit? And, or he'll tell, you, he'll tell you, you know what, you could just bow down now and then just ask for forgiveness later. Best of both worlds, right? You don't get thrown into the fire, a little compromise. And then you just go and ask for forgiveness because you know God is good and he'll forgive you. Why don't you just do that? You can escape the trouble and get back into fellowship with God. These are suggestions from the devil, by the way. But such Christians never make it. Make it. They don't mature because they don't have a backbone. They never make it. The Christian will face afflictions, but the Lord, at the end of that Psalm 34, says the Lord delivers them out of all, all of them. 
There's another story in Matthew 14 where Jesus told his disciples after he did this miracle of feeding 5,000 people, he tells them to cross the sea. And the very next verse says a terrific storm came up. He had to compel them to obey and then a storm came and rocked their boat. So think about that. What happens, what is possible when we obey God? It's very possible that we face a storm. And of course, if we disobey and we don't want to follow God where he's leading us, we could have a pretty peaceful, quiet, lazy Saturday afternoon and just nothing's going on. You're just on the shore. It's humid. But when we obey God, we will face storms. And the question really then comes, do you prefer just to sit on the shore and you don't experience the goodness of God to, to calm the storm or you obey God, you go out and you've realized, okay, there's a storm coming but then I get to experience God like I've never before seen. And, he can, and you learn a little bit of his character that he can still every storm. So he, Asaph goes on to say, verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. So he's still struggling. He still doesn't understand why it's difficult for him and not difficult for others why he has to suffer, and the wicked don't. And then in verse 17, this is where everything begins to change. In verse 17, so he says, I pondered to understand this. It was troublesome in my sight. And he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, until I came into the presence of God, then I perceived their end. There is only one place that we as Christians can really get some answers, and that is in the presence of God. It's in the presence of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the, the way into God's presence was blocked by a veil, a thick veil, it says. But when Jesus died on the cross, it says that veil was torn top to bottom, signifying now the, the way is open. He made a way for us to enter in to his presence. Any one of us can. Because Jesus died, he rose again, he's filled us with the Spirit, and he seated us with him in the, in the heavenly places. So we can now enter into his presence, and in his presence, we'll get some answers. Asaph's mind did that. So he, Asaph's mind entered into eternity where a holy God dwelt. And all of this confusion, all of this discord, all of this struggle and prosperity that's going on in life, he, it, it all came into harmony. He understood. He says, finally, I perceived it. I understood their end. He said, I went back into God's presence, humbled myself, sought to worship him, got back to the basics of honoring God. And when I, got to, when I went to that place, you know what I realized? This life isn't all there is to life. This life isn't everything. I saw their final outcome. It looks like they're standing on a rock. They're on a slippery slope right now. One commentary says they're ripening for ruin. So they flourish for a time, but then they're undone forever. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16, verse 26. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? <clears throat> so it's in the presence of God that we actually, that question even enters our heart. It's in his presence we actually say, what good is all this prosperity and comfort and ease if my soul is lost forever? The presence of God is when we discover what matters at the end of the day. Verse 18, he says, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. So again, he's saying, they, are, they look like they're on a rock and I look like I'm in a slippery place. I'm poor and weak and suffering. 
but I'm actually the one on the rock when it comes through eternity. In verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Like a dream when one awakes. So the world right now is full of people who are spiritually asleep. Like for the first song we sang, it was Awake My Soul. According to the Bible, the reality of this life is, is kind of like a dream. It's kind of like a dream. I'm sure you've had, a, had dreams before that were very real. Some of y'all probably had some last night where it was so real. And then you woke up and you were either like disappointed you weren't there or you were like relieved. You're like, oh, thank God, that was just a dream. Huh. Um, I, I, one of the best dreams I ever had is I had a dream I was flying one time. I don't know if you've had that. All right. But I felt like I was flying which is hard to feel because I've never flown and I don't know what that feels like. But in the dream, I felt like it. And it was, I mean, I was, I, it was like I was riding the magic carpet. I was over sideways and under just the whole thing. I was there. Uh, years ago, I was like, man, that was the best dream of my life. Right. But how, how crazy would I have to be to wake up and be like, where'd the carpet go? Babe, where's, where's the magic carpet? I was just on it. Like, you check the closet, I'll go check the garage. I'm pretty sure it's there. I was just, I mean, I was soaring and tumbling and where's the carpet? Like, I would have to be an actual crazy person to think that. And I would waste my life looking for this magic carpet that's not there because it was just a dream. And the Bible teaches us that this life we live is, in is almost as unreal as a dream. In 1 Peter 1, 24, it says this, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The, gra the grass withers and the flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Again, in James 4, 14, it says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. See, but who understands this? Who understands that the real life is the one that's coming when Jesus returns and we experience eternity? That is the realest life. <laughs> Even, even wealth that we acquire, it's, it's like acquiring wealth in a dream. You can get rich in a dream, but then you wake up and it's gone. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> and so when we see all these other people, the wicked, they're cutting corners and they're, they're building their kingdoms and, and, and they're getting wealthy, it, it's, it's going to be gone in an instant. It, it's like a dream. It's like they're building their kingdom and they sacrifice their family. They sacrifice their friends. Their, any values they ever have is sacrificed to build this great kingdom. And then they wake up and it's like, oh, it was, that was like a board game. The fake money's back in the box. It's all gone. It's, you have nothing to show for your life. It's all packed away. And eternity is the thing that's going to reveal this to a lot of people. So that's why, hear me now. Verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then... I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I was like a beast, like an animal. So Asaph, again, is here just brutally honest, saying that he was bitter of the prosperity of the wicked, and it, and it caused him senselessness. And he says he became like a beast before God, like an animal. So how do, you, how do you become, how do you realize you're like an animal before God? Well, an animal, again, likened to the dream, an animal only thinks of this life. There are no animals that think about eternity. Dogs don't think about eternity. No one does. No animal does. And so what he's saying here is if we're focused on just this life, we're no different than an animal in a sense. 
You take care of your children, so do the dogs and the cats and the pigs. You provide food for them, doesn't make you better than them. I mean, we, we get food for our children, so do the birds, right? We want to build our kingdom, so do the lions. See the Lion King? Everything the light touches. What is an animal interested in? They're interested in food, sleep, sex, fighting for your rights, protecting your territory, your people, and living for another day. That's it. And if that's our existence, how are we better than an animal? So Asaph's like, in the presence of God, I'm like, it came to me. I was just living like an animal. I was just like in a dream. And so it's when we come into the presence of God that we can see that. So verse 23, he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. So he's saying, Lord, despite all these terrible thoughts that are going through my mind, all these doubts, you're still with me. I, I, in his presence, he sees, wow, wait, I am questioning so many things, but I look down and, and the father's hand is in mine and he's guiding me through it and he's not letting me go. He's so patient. He's so patient with us. And in verse 24, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. And so Asaph decides he's done choosing his own path here. He's done trying to figure it out by himself. He says, with your counsel, you guide me. And afterwards, afterwards is such a powerful word because if we can see what's afterwards, what's coming next, we can endure quite a bit right now. And he says, afterwards, guess what? I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting glory. So who cares what really happens right now? And this leads to my favorite verse in Psalms, uh, one of the most precious verses in Psalms. Verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. I mean, that is, what a prayer. Like, that is a true Christian prayer. He says, Lord, I don't just want to go to heaven. I want to be with you. I want to be where you are. I mean, think of a, a husband and wife who are deeply in love with one another. Would the wife be happy to go live in this amazing palace but her husband wasn't there? It wouldn't matter. And, and in contrast, she would be okay living in a hut, but her beloved is there. The question isn't, well, it, it's not about the gold streets. It's not about the no more tears and no more pain. It's, well, it's Jesus is there. I, I just, when we get in the presence of God, it's like we realize that's all that matters. I just want to be with my, my beloved. It's Jesus. And we, it, it might be good to ask the question, would you be willing to live in an environment or an atmosphere like hell if Jesus were there? <laughs> what makes heaven heaven, I guess? That's the question. And, and Asaph is saying here, he's like, I realized it. It's heaven is heaven because God is there. Because I will be with God and, and, and nothing else matters. And so this is, this is true discipleship. This is when, it, when a man and a woman get to a place and they say, Lord Jesus, I don't desire anything in heaven but you. I'm not looking for the comfort, the gold, the crowns, whatever else heaven affords. I'm not interested in all of that. I'm thankful for it. But I'm going because I want to be with you, the one who died for me, the one who gave me new life. I want to be with Jesus and nothing else. And he says it's the same on earth. It's not that we have to wait till then. He says, I desire nothing on earth besides you. If you give me other things, well and good. And if you don't, makes no difference. As long as I have you, Lord, as long as I'm in the presence of the Lord. In verse 26, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So we see Asaph kind of land the plane. He turns the corner, doesn't he? Uh, He says, Lord, here it all is. He starts off, I know you're good. Here's my problem. I'm upset. I'm jealous. I'm bitter. Here, I'm letting it all hang out. And then he finally gets to this place where he's like, in the presence of God, he realizes none of that matters. What matters is the nearness of God is my good. What matters is that I am near God. The, the more near we are to God, the less the world has an effect on us. We're less uh, 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 affected by the attractions and distractions of this world because we're with someone who is otherworldly. We're with Jesus. And he's with us. And nothing else really does matter at that point. <clears throat> so I'll go ahead and the band come on up as I wrap it up here. So I, we, I wanted to really focus in on this Psalm 73 and land here because we need to see, and really it's that phrase in verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Whatever else is going on in this life, whatever I have, whatever I don't have, All I know is that when I am near God, that's all that matters. That I'm with him. I have no other need. Nothing else matters. And so being enthralled and and captivated with the word of God leads us to this place where, where one, we can express doubts. We can express our questions. We can say, Lord, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand this and I'm frustrated. It feels like you're busy and whatever's going on. Beyond that, it should lead us to this place where because we're honest with God, quote, with God, we're with God, we realize, oh, that's all I needed. I just needed to talk to you. I just needed to be with my heavenly father and realizing from that place that that is so good. That is what is good eternally. That is what heaven is about. That is what earth is about. There's no one in heaven I desire. There's nothing on earth I desire but you, Jesus. And the last thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, we started off this series I mean, this series is about the Word of God. And I wanted to make sure we also brought in and and ended with uh, partnering that with the the presence of God. So many times, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this. It's almost like a battle of one or the other. It's like, well, we're we're about the Word of God. Like, well, we're just about the presence of God. And in this psalm, we see, man, it comes together in perfect unity. We hold them both. We hold the Word of God so dear that we honor it and we read it and we study it and we make sure it gets deep into our hearts. But to lead us into the presence of God. So we actually experience life. And we don't just talk about life. We don't just have the right answers. But we actually have the life of Christ within us. The presence of God with us. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, he was answering the Pharisees. I don't know exactly know what. But he says, <coughs> you are mistaken since you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God. The scriptures and the power of God. We have to have them both. So let's go ahead and stand. Uh, Some of us, I would argue, have been in church, been in a life group, been doing the thing, um, been in the sanctuary of God, but have not come into the presence of God in a while. Where you've kind of gone through the motions. I think there's some people here also that Uh, you know, just like Asaph, there's something going on in life that you don't understand or you just don't like 
And in the presence of God is when we can get that perspective shift. So we say, I don't understand. I, I didn't understand it. After today, you go home and say, I didn't understand it until, until I came into the sanctuary of God, until I came into his presence. And so I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I would argue that there are people here who have maybe not woken up in a sense. They're still living for this life. This life is everything. And the invitation for you right now is, is, is look up. Your father's hand is right there and he wants to hold you. He wants to bring you into his presence where you get to experience the goodness of God for eternity. So if I could have a few uh, life group leaders come on up for ministry time. Um, we're going to have people up here for, for prayer. And if you need anything, this, is, this, the, this moment right now is a moment of, okay, I just need to get in the presence of God. Whether I need salvation, whether I need healing, deliverance, a word of wisdom, a word of discernment, or I just need to know that someone else loves me, whatever is going on, the presence of God has everything. And so uh, in a minute, we're gonna, I'm gonna close it down, but I want you to come up and just receive prayer. I do believe there are people in this room who need that perspective shift. And it, it could be a small thing to like, I just don't understand this one thing, to a big thing to where you're like, I don't understand salvation. I'm not saved. I'm not living for eternity. And I want to. I want to, I want, to want Jesus more than anything else on this earth. I want to be able to say, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? I want to get to this place where I can say, honestly, nothing else matters. I just want to be with Jesus. He is heaven to me. So come on up if that's you. Father, we, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just captivating us with your beauty. Thank you for bringing us into your presence. Thank you that uh, you have given us your Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us and to show us the way. And we pray right now that you would speak to each individual that just needs to get back into the presence of God, back to the basics of just worshiping you, to the basics of saying, Lord, I live to give you glory. So come and meet with us this morning. Would you minister to every single one of us, Lord? We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.